Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Professor Bruce Ackerman visited the National Constitution Center last week to discuss his new book, Revolutionary Constitutions, Charismatic Leadership in the Rule of Law, with NCC President Jeffrey Rosen. Professor Ackerman uses historical analysis and comparative constitutionalism to explore how constitutional change happens here in the U.S. and around the world. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. All right. I, I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I talk about Bruce Ackerman as one of America's greatest and most visionary constitutional theorists. And I want you, if you can find the discipline to enlighten yourself, to read his brilliant three-part trilogy on the U.S. Constitution, We the People, parts one, two, and three. You will learn more from it than almost any other book of constitutional history and theory, and you will learn that constitutional change in America has not only taken place according to the specific rules prescribed by Article 5 of the Constitution, in particular proposal by two-thirds of both houses of Congress or by a special convention and then ratification by three-quarters of the states or by special conventions, but instead has taken a dynamic process that he describes as the signaling of the desire for constitutional change, the triggering of a particular proposal, a fight over ratification that may or may not uh, be legal under the pre-existing rules, and then consolidation, which can involve acquiescence by the other branches of government. His absolutely brilliant new book, Revolutionary Constitutions, extends this project to constitutions around the world and invites us to understand our current vexations, including the populist moment that so many of us are struggling to understand, not only in parochial American terms, but by reference to constitution making around the world. It's a project of extraordinary creativity and originality, and this is the first of several volumes. So we have so much to talk about, but Bruce, I'm going to just begin by asking you the fundamental question, uh, among many that this book uh, raises, is the populism represented by President Trump unique? Not at all. First, beginning with American history, uh, uh, since the founding of the Republic, presidents in every generation have tried to repudiate fundamental elements of the inheritance of the past. Thomas Jefferson did this. Andrew Jackson did this. Abraham Lincoln did this, William Jennings Bryan, and where we get the word populist from, uh, uh, tried to do it and failed. Uh, then we have Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt. It should be said, Woodrow Wilson is the first president since Thomas Jefferson who actually goes to Congress and gives the State of the Union address. It was considered to be dramatically inappropriate for a president to claim that he had a mandate from the people. Uh, this is why you know, uh, a Gettysburg address is so short and in, stated in Gettysburg, not before Congress. Uh, then we have uh, Franklin Roosevelt, Ronald uh, Will, Lyndon Johnson, with the Civil Rights Revolution, and Ronald Reagan, 
all of them claiming mandates from the people to drain the swamp. The swamp is identified differently, of course, in every case. But the basic structure of the assertion is the same. So that's the first very, Trump is not uh, unique in American history. The second non-uniqueness, and here we can, the comparative framework really does give us insight, is the communications revolution. Franklin Roosevelt is the first president claiming a, a mandate from the people who goes into every person's home. So here we have what, we, what I call charismatic leadership, you see. Previously, presidents are selected on the basis of their accomplishments. Some of them may be not so great, some, you know, in our eyes, but in their eyes, they were substantial enough to merit selection as a presidential nominee by one of the two parties. Uh, but uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who gets the nomination to be sure, then gets into everyone's home. And so, of course, does Lyndon Johnson. And so, of course, does Ronald Reagan. You know, government is the problem, not the solution. That's an effort to repudiate the New Deal doesn't quite succeed, uh, but that's a different point. Um, from this point of view, once again, what Donald Trump is doing is using the modern media to make a direct connection to his mass public. This is where the comparative insight really helps a lot. Um, because uh, uh, there are many revolutionary constitutions around the world in which leaders also in the 20th, in the late, you know, since the Second World War, basically, uh, there's a, everyone is using the radio, television, et cetera, who's at the top making direct appeals to their masses and not only to their party members. Uh, 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 Jawaharlal Nehru in India. Uh, this is a remarkable achievement, after all. There are, oh, I would say, 1,200 different spoken languages in, in India. And he is making an appeal in English uh, uh, to uh, a significant percentage of the population of local leaders who are opinion leaders uh, directly. Uh, so too is David Ben-Gurion. Uh, so too is, uh, uh, in Israel, then we have uh, Toliati and, um, um, I'm sorry, uh, and de Gasperi in Italy, who are saying we need, we have to repudiate the monarchy and have a new constitution. If we're, we the people, this is populism, my friends. Populism is not a dirty word. Uh, when it's the source, I mean, just think, without the Congress party in India and a mass mobilization leading to the Constitution, India would not be India today. There would be no Constitution. Um, the, uh, similarly, Charles de Gaulle uh, in the Fifth Republic makes it as a center 
to constitutionalize his personal charisma. The, uh, uh, so we have, uh, uh, and so does Lech Valenza. Right? Now, the, uh, the question then is, and this is the issue, um, when I said so does Lech Valenza, I made a mistake. Valenza and Ben-Gurion do not put constitutional construction first. They put first their uh, other problems. Ben-Gurion is fighting a war. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to judge people. <laughs> I'm here to, sh you know, to actually describe the dilemmas that, that statesmen face. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, Valenza, the question is, should we push the free market solution because the communist solution was generally discredited and make that work for the people first and then delay constitutionalization? Both of them said, we're going to push the military problem and the uh, economic first and defer the constitution problem. That's not what these other people who I mentioned said. That's also not what the Ayatollah Khomeini did. The Ayatollah Khomeini is in Paris and the constitutional draft, which still structures things in uh, right now, was written as a copy, word for word, 85% word for word of the Gaullist constitution of France. Um, this and, uh, uh, and then I can't tell you the whole story, but just, I'm just gonna give you one fact right now. Um, there are two fundamental leaders in, in Iran, not one. We always say, ah, the, uh, the Ayatollah Khamenei, he's the supreme leader. That is not true. And this just gives you a sense. The Ayatollah Khamenei is against any nuclear agreement with the West. He put up two candidates in the last two elections who expressed that program. They were opposed by Rouhani who is the president, self-consciously saying, and this was all, you know, the only countries in uh, the Middle East where they count the votes in a serious way are Israel and Iran. That's the truth of the matter. Um, uh, and in both elections, Rouhani says, no, we have to have a nuclear agreement with the West. Uh, Two, we have to have an economic opening because we have to sell our oil. It isn't, you know, it isn't gratuitous. We have to sell our oil to the West. The Ayatollah is very much opposed to that. He's against, he wants independence from the West in economics. Whom, you know, this is just describing the debate. And on both elections, Rouhani beats the Ayatollah's candidate. And that's why, although the Ayatollah is deeply against the nuclear agreement, he doesn't have the authority to veto it. He has the legal right. He has the constitutional authority. But that's just like um, uh, 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 John Roberts. He had the constitutional authority to veto um, uh, Obamacare, but he didn't do it. You know? 
because he correctly, in my view, saw that if he did that, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court would be at the very center of the election of uh, uh, 2016, uh, uh, 12, uh, 12, sorry, 2012. Uh, and if Obama won a second term, this would greatly damage the Supreme Court's legitimacy. And he wisely, in my view, decided, no, I'm going to affirm Obamacare. He affirmed it in a different, uh, in, a, in a way which we don't have to get into, uh, but he affirmed it. So it's the same thing that uh, Khomeini uh, is confronting. You know, he's deeply opposed to it, but if he tried to do it, there would be mobilization in the streets, just as there was uh, uh, 15 years ago. Uh, so the, uh, uh, what I'm interested in is not, you know, I'm interested in checks and balances. Do we have a system of autocratic rule in which there is a supreme leader? You know, in China, there is a supreme leader. <laughs> That's it. Uh, uh, then there are other systems, and there are many other countries, which are just a military, you know. A, uh, Saudi Arabia, there is a supreme leader. Uh, the, uh, 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 then there are countries around the world in which there are checks and balances, which affirm fundamental principles, many times ones that I approve of, <laughs> sometimes ones I don't approve of, but they all have the feature, these revolutionary constitutions, that they constitutionalize the charisma, right? So what is the root of our predicament? I say it's Franklin Roosevelt. Not, I mean, Trump is, you know, what Franklin Roosevelt does in 1937, he has three quarters majorities in both House and Senate, as was pointed out, you only need two thirds. <laughs> right. uh, and he had, the Democrats have swept 40 of the states of the union by a, a ratio of more than 60 to 40. Only 10 states did Alf Landon carry 40% of the vote. Moreover, he had a precedent, uh, prohibition repeal. How was prohibition repealed? Two thirds of Congress proposed the amendment, but the legislatures did not. It was not sent to the legislatures. As Jeff points out, there's this alternative. It's the only time since the founding that this alternative was used, which was have ratifying state conventions. This turned into the prohibition reveal, uh, a rolling referendum. Basically, there were two slates of candidates for each state's referendum. Um, and uh, one was pro prohibition repeal, one was against. Prohibition repeal was enacted in 11 months. Incredible. Incredible. That's why Roosevelt, during the first term, they were developing constitutional amendments in, so, in case that uh, uh, he won big in 1937 because he's faced with a court that he doesn't know is going to make a switch in time. He thinks that they're striking things down all the time, which is what they're doing. Um, 
And uh, uh, so what happens is, uh, and it's fascinating, on January 3rd, just as the uh, new Congress with the, eight, the three quarters majorities, and moreover, many of the Republicans were pro-New Deal. <laughs> uh, um, uh, we have in the New York Times interviewed uh, articles, basically, uh, interviews, but really articles, interviewing the Speaker of the House, uh, um, uh, Bankhead, and the uh, uh, Majority Leader of the Senate, uh, uh, second here, these names, you know, there are a million names in this, I <laughs> think. Um, uh, uh, well, well, I'll remember it in a second. Uh, the majority leader of the Senate uh, uh, on the front page of the New York Times saying, we're going to have to amend the Constitution. We'd have no choice. Only the next month, Roosevelt decides, no, we're going to do court packing instead. This is the key decision, you see, because our Constitution has a two-part framework. One part, there is public deliberation in the Congress about what makes, what the New Deal is about, let's put it in that way, right? Then there would be an argument in the country where ordinary people would be confronted with media communications, then radio, pro and con, and they would vote. No, that's not what Roosevelt did. He let Felix Frankfurter do it and he let William O. Douglas do it. Felix Frankfurter is the first nominee to actually appear in public at a confirmation hearing. He writes Roosevelt saying, this is completely inappropriate. We have no precedent for this. Roosevelt says, do it, because the head of the uh, dies and various other uh, people are saying, you're a Jew, you're a, an immigrant, you're a commie. We're not going to let you on the court. And Frankfurter gives this eloquent address, which is on the radio, secondary. It wasn't uh, saying, I am, uh, you know, I understand the evils of totalitarianism, et cetera, and so forth. And goes through. Of course, that's because Roosevelt had the overwhelming majority and, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, it wasn't in the Senate, uh, but, and, and this kind of thing wasn't enough. And it's only then that we begin to see the hearings function as the only occasion in which ordinary people understand what's going on. Right? Now, what Ronald Reagan does is try to repeal the New Deal through New Deal methods. He does not offer up amendments. Well, he offers them up, but nobody takes them seriously. Right. He, you know, Nino Scalia is William O. Douglas, who is, <laughs> embarrassingly, uh, uh, I'm in, I think I might even be sitting in his seat. <laughs> hey, I was a, I'm a university professor, so is he from Yale. The, uh, 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 but I'm not, I haven't really traced it. I'm not so proud of being William O. Douglas' successor, but nonetheless. The, uh, uh, and then, uh, uh, and Bob Bork uh, is precisely Felix Frankfurter. He says, you know, Felix Frankfurter is very, you know, 
I'm going to repudiate the new, the new deal on originalist principles, right? And he loses. Why? Because unlike Roosevelt, the Senate is now in the control of Democrats when he's nominated. That's, that's simple as that. People learn the lesson. Presidents learned the lesson from then on, stealth appointments. You see. So that means the last way in which ordinary people can understand what uh, is uh, at stake is lost. You know, there are pundits, but the, but the nominee himself says, I'm going to call balls and strikes. I'm sorry, I can't tell you how I'm going to decide particular cases. Right. Uh, the, uh, so it's that when we precedes Merrick Garland, you see. If Merrick Garland had been given a hearing, what would he have done? I'm going to call balls and strikes. And he would have lost. Uh, because uh, the president had lost control of the Senate. Um, the, uh, uh, would someone else, well, I mean, you know, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> The, uh, uh, but uh, uh, but it, uh, and so now we have, of course, two appointees who have, you know, the only things that attract people, ordinary people, are scandals, which are, of course, serious business in terms of sexual harassment and things of this kind, but fundamentally irrelevant to what the, the nominee is going to do on the bench having to do with, you know, whether you're going to overrule Roe against Wade. Um, that's what people would like to have a debate about if there's going to be a debate. That's no longer there. But it's all rooted in this initial decision not to constitutionalize charisma. Um, uh, in, as I said, the person who is Roosevelt is most similar to is Lech Valenza. Because Roosevelt wanted to pursue his, it was more important for Roosevelt to get through social security than to constitutionalize the fundamental principles of the New Deal. Um, um. I I'm listening to you wrapped, as I know the audience is, and one of the consequences of your analysis of Roosevelt's failure to constitutionalize his presidential charisma through formal Article V amendments is that, according to you, in your last chapter, the election of 2020 represents the choice between continuing the old third republic of the New Deal, and whether we will embrace a new constitutional regime. You argue that if President Trump is reelected and has another appointee to the Supreme Court, that Supreme Court will have the ability and indeed the authority to repudiate the New Deal understanding, restrict the scope of the regulatory state, and to, trans, to resurrect an originalist constitution that would represent as dramatic uh, a new constitutional understanding as that between the three other republics you recognize, the founding, reconstruction, and the New Deal era republic. 
So I want our audience to understand the stakes. This is, and remember, Bruce is saying, I'm not judging, I'm just describing. He's saying, according to the standards of constitutional change in the founding, Reconstruction, and the New Deal, if President Trump were to win and the Supreme Court were to change, then we would have a new constitutional regime. Say more about that yes. and what the consequences of this new regime or republic might look like. One step back uh, and uh, maybe three steps into the fog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one uh, step back, uh, you see, uh, the... Uh, Roosevelt established precedents, which I call landmark statutes, uh, which represented in the public understanding of the time foundational principles. For example, social security. Indeed, it is very interesting to note that Roosevelt's strategy of entrenching so Social Security through a landmark statute has been more successful than the uh, constitutional regime he created through Felix Frankfurter. Even today, it's hard to repudiate Social Security um, because Roosevelt entrenched it and then it was developed further at later times. Uh, similarly, uh, in the New Deal civil rights revolution, in which Lyndon Johnson, whose you know, claim to fame was that he was an early New Dealer, uh, he, uh, uh, that was what he did for this first year and a half. He was uh, 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 helping poor uh, um, uh, Mexican Americans uh, uh, learn uh, uh, and educate themselves and things of this kind, and then got promoted up the hierarchy as a new dealer against the old Texas establishment Democrats. Uh, uh, the uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, you know, passed the poll tax amendment. Nobody really, even, even when it's applicable to what actually is going on right now, no one takes it seriously. But he passed the Civil Rights Act of 64, the, Civil Rights, the Voting Rights Act of 65, Fair housing, 68. These you know, were landmark statutes and the crucial first step in undermining the very idea that the landmark statutes have to be respected uh, is uh, John Roberts' opinion uh, uh, saying that uh, the key sections of the Voting Rights Act, which is the absolute core of the New Deal revolution, even more important than the Civil Rights Act, to, that the black people could vote effectively in everywhere, um, was unconstitutional under the Reconstruction Amendments, you see. Um, uh, I think he's very wrong uh, on his interpretation of the uh, of the Reconstruction Amendments, but put that to one side. Um, he's saying that something that was at the core of the most successful revolution in our time, the Civil Rights Revolution, uh, uh, is unconstitutional because um, Thaddeus Stevens might, well, didn't quite win enough votes or something. Uh, no, 
It's Lyndon Johnson and the American people in the 60s and 70s. They're the ones who said, we the people insist on fair voting for everyone in this country for the first time in the history of this country. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so that has undermined the very idea that landmark statutes have to be respected, uh, I fear. Uh, and so uh, going now to your uh, 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 question, what happens next? Uh, well, we have several scenarios. I will just sketch them out. I don't want to uh, take up too much time, but you tell me when I'm... Uh, the uh, uh, one scenario is uh, uh, that uh, Trump uh, loses. Let's start with that one. But uh, I'll go through all of them. Uh, Trump loses. Uh, and uh, whoever wins uh, uh, carries Congress, but by a small majority. It's nothing like Franklin Roosevelt or even Lyndon Johnson. They had big majorities. Um, uh, and uh, proposes legislation which is unconstitutional under the existing interpre originalist interpretation by the majority of the Supreme Court without any more appointments. Um, uh, then the question will be for the Roberts Court. Um, Will we do what we did in uh, 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 2012 and uphold it? Uh, or will we strike it down? Now, John Roberts is losing control of his court. Without any replacements, he's losing control of his court. Uh, and uh, so I don't know, uh, even if uh, uh, John Roberts wanted to lead to a five-person majority uh, uh, to uphold statutes, let's say, that would reassert the Voting Rights Act. Let's take a, you know, will he uh, back off from his opinion? Okay, if he does, then um, they, uh, there is a possibility of adaptation over time, in which a good deal, but not entirely, of the New Deal civil rights revolution will remain in place. That's the happy story. For you. Yes. <laughs> well, no, I don't think for, for me. I mean, it's a happy story in the sense that we were in a, a decade. We're, this is opening a decade of constitutional crisis. I'm not, I don't think that this is a great thing for the country. <laughs> It could be a disastrous thing for the country. We might not get out of it. Uh, so I, I am uh, 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 the uh, the uh, uh, the second uh, uh, scenario. Sorry, great because it avoids a constitutional crisis. Pardon me. Great because it avoids a constitutional. That's crisis. That's right. I mean, we already have one, but it's we 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 already have a constitutional crisis. President Trump is. Uh, acting in ways that are decisively repudiating elements of the uh, uh, civil rights New Deal revolution. I don't have to elaborate them. I, I must ask you about that, though, because we just had a podcast with yes. Keith Whittington and Adam oh, Liptak, yes. and Whittington says we don't have a constitutional crisis because there are two kinds of crises. One, a crisis of fidelity, where the president says, I won't obey the court, and he hasn't done that. And two, a crisis of uh, functionality, where the branches can't 
operate or fund each other or come to a standstill, and that hasn't happened yet either. So he said... Well, I actually admire... I mean, I think Keith Whittington is one of the really uh, first-rate scholars, but I just disagree. That is to say, uh, uh, when uh, uh, President Trump uh, announces that... uh, uh, we're not going to admit uh, migrants from Muslim-majority countries. Um, this is an assault on the principle of the establishment of religion. We don't need a court to tell us that, although they did, if you recall. Uh, uh, the uh, when uh, the I mean his notion of uh, well, if Congress doesn't can want really wants to do it. Uh, uh, it can cut funds off. No. The President of the United States uh, uh, has an obligation to execute the law. he, he doesn't have, uh, if, if the, our system is not based on the idea that the President can do, create uh, facts on the ground which are unconstitutional, and then say, okay, and then create dynamics, political dynamics, and then 18 months later, uh, uh, it comes to uh, Congress and say, uh, do something about it. No, the fundamental principle of, I had imagined, of our Constitution is that uh, the President of the United States has to implement a good faith interpretation of the laws of the United States as passed by Congress and as, uh, 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 and as uh, uh, elaborated, of course, on the foundational principles of the American Constitution. Uh, and if he wants to change the law, he has to propose a change, uh, and Congress will either say yes or no. Not that the president could just do what he asserts uh, uh, on the basis of a very small legal staff, I should say, uh, all of whom he appoints, um, uh, and then uh, challenge Congress to cut off funds if they don't like it. Uh, that's not our system. That isn't even the French system, which has a super presidency, which is much more powerful that you can't get away with that in France either. Uh, the, uh, uh, so this is, uh, I just dis- disagree with. Okay, so this is helpful. So you believe that when the president is refusing to take care that the law is faithfully executed in Congress and the courts are not effectively responding, that is a constitutional crisis. Well, it, uh, you know, uh, absolutely. And I, I want to emphasize that uh, President Obama created very serious bad precedents of unilateral constitutional interpretation, uh, which had no basis in the Constitution. So, for example, when he did not get an authorization for invading Syria, um, this uh, was, uh, had, no base, uh, had no basis in either the 2001 or the 2002 uh, authorizations. What everyone wants to say about President Bush's policy, as I said, I'm not... You know, I, sometimes when I write things in newspapers, you know, that's a different, that's a different role. I, you know, my, I've been a lucky person. Uh, 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 they uh, pay me a good salary, and, and all I have, do is 
read books. <laughs> and, you know, this is work, you know, and then I write, you know, and I, and I don't have to get funding for it. You know, they, they, there's special money for these universities. And I just write, you know, I write books and over long periods of time. Uh, but please. I must say, just as an inspiration, personal and to all of you, Bruce sets aside your mornings to That's write. Right. And on his door, it says, Professor Ackerman will be happy to talk to you after noon, but the morning is for writing. And the rigor and discipline with which you have written every morning and produced book after book of such light is a dramatic inspiration well, to me and all of your students. But let us return to the important please. question I have, because we have only just a few minutes. So, so we are in a constitutional crisis. If a Democrat won and the court right. backed off, then we would avoid having a worse one. Now let's imagine that the court doesn't back off and strikes down the core of the Green New Deal and the Democrats propose to pack the court just as they did in 37, and they might do anyway. Would that be a further crisis? Well, that's, that will be worse than the New Deal crisis. You see, what we have today is something, well, I, would, uh, I don't know. I would say that there is an antecedent in the 1790s, but that's going too back too far well, for what? the present purpose. Uh, uh, but in, in, uh, uh, right now, you see, generally speaking, what we have, uh, in, when I ticked off all of these presidents like Jackson or, or Lincoln, we had an, a movement party that had settled in for a decade or more of governing, you know, like Buchanan. Uh, he is an, an inheritance, in a complicated way, of the Jacksonian regime. Um, but it's all, the energy has gone out. And then you have a bunch of crazies, the Republican Party, saying, we repudiate a foundational element of the Constitution as it existed, which is a compact with slavery. That's what, you know, everybody understood that. Um, uh, similarly, uh, uh, so that uh, uh, is a, a, a one movement against a, uh, uh, an old movement that has sort of petered out, and there's establishment politicians. Similarly, um, we have uh, in the New Deal, Hoover is the classic representative of the previous regime. He's a technocrat. He does not believe in individualist laissez-faire. He is the person who sponsors the Radio Act. He says, we have to have a regulatory framework. We can't let uh, the equivalent of uh, NBC or CBS or, or uh, 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 the you know, Netflix or whatever run the media. We have to have a government Commission, which then becomes the Federal Communications Commission. It's going to set guidelines for what you can say and what you cannot say. And there, it's a clear and present danger test, all this kind of stuff. So Hoover is, you know, uh, uh, a paradigmatic example of the old regime. He has the misfortune of being clobbered with the worst depression of um, you know, a long time, even much worse than the one we've been through. Uh, and he is repudiated by Franklin Roosevelt, who is an intellectual lightweight. Um, the, uh, and he knows it. He knows it. And that's why he gets all the brain trust to come in. He's a patrician, you know. Um, uh, and he uh, gets all these smart guys, and he works with them And when he was governor, and he, he can do it. And it works. 
No. And uh, uh, the, uh, uh, so uh, what we... Uh, so why would it be worse now? We have two movement parties. We have the movement party of the right, and we have the movement party of the left. Uh, and the center is disintegrated. Uh, we'll see what happens with a Democratic nomination, but if uh, a centrist wins, there will be a very unhappy left. You know? uh, and after Trump, uh, you go, because Trump is you know, not forever, uh, after Trump, you're going to have, similarly, a struggle between a strong right and a weak centrist. Uh, so we have two movement parties, which makes the constitutional confrontation much worse. Uh, uh, the, uh, because it's not clear, and that's why I was saying, I started with the, 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 the happy story of accommodation, uh, since if there is uh, uh, not an accommodation and the uh, court strikes down the legislation, and let's, you know, let's, with any number of things are unconstitutional. Or even more, if the court also uh, uh, repudiates Roe against Wade, uh, 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 then, uh, uh, then what we're going to have is a strong confrontation like 1937. Uh, and indeed, uh, I've been making you see, I've been making proposals about how one might manage that in a way that could uh, uh, be understood as a fair compromise. Uh, but it's obviously much more confrontational. Uh, then, on the other final scenario, President Trump wins again because I don't want to forget about that. Uh, uh, and he is, uh, you know, uh, and I, uh, this ch you, it's up to you. Uh, I, my crystal ball is no better than yours. Uh, President Trump uh, uh, wins again. Then the, con then the Supreme Court will have a moment of truth, you see, because uh, it is at the core of the founding that the President of the United States does not exercise the powers of the King of England. What were the powers of the King of England that the colonists revolted against? One, that he could make war without the consent of the House of Commons, and that he treated and dismissed uh, uh, the assemblies with contempt and ignored their efforts at accommodation. Um, so the moment of truth is whether that core, and this is not controversial. You know, there are many other things that are controversial what the, what the meaning of the First Amendment is. All the, I mean, there are many, you know, and, and, uh, but this is absolutely, you know, just read the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, 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 the, uh, uh, so the question for the court is going to be, uh, without any change, is it going to be true to this core originalist principle, or will it just rubber stamp what President Trump does? And I don't know the answer to that question, uh, but a great deal hangs upon it, because if it, if it 
legitimizes the second term of President Trump, which will be, a, have no reason to believe that it won't be similar to the first term. This is to legitimate authoritarianism. But, but just to continue in your descriptive modes, let's imagine the court does not uh, legitimate authoritarianism and prevents right. the most extreme executive orders, but nevertheless overturns the post-New Deal understanding, strikes yes. down regulatory agencies, overturns Roe v. Wade, and, and, and strikes down more voting That's rights right. acts. Do you believe descriptively that that would be a legitimate interpretation of the Fourth Republic, the originalist constitution that has... This is the Fourth Republic. This is no, the Fourth Republic, right. and, and the justices, the Republicans won a whole lot of elections, that's and they appointed a whole correct. lot of justices, and people knew what the stakes were, and they that's voted for President Trump because they wanted those justices. That's right. So would it therefore not be uh, a legitimate exercise of the court's interpretive authority to roll back the New Deal and resurrect the originalist constitution? Yes, and uh, the, of course, the uh, and it will, you know, look, you know, uh, most constitutions last, uh, if they're successful, 50 years, 75 years. The idea that uh, the, the uh, New Deal civil rights constitution endured for 50 years. It's up to the present generation. If, of course, if this continues, if uh, this, the, the, uh, 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 President Trump's new regime continue, uh, be, begins, uh, then uh, there will be the question whether there will be a broad mobilization of a majority against it. And uh, that the next election of uh, 2024 uh, uh, will lead to a candidate who stands for the repudiation of this embryonic Fourth Republic. But it would take decades because the justices will last for decades. And you will well, have this six to three court for decades. And well, regimes last for decades. So well, what no, will but you see, you see, the, it's too, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the American Constitution has had a checkered career, after all. Between uh, 1815 and 1914, um, the bloodiest war in the West was fought in the United States around the meaning of the American Constitution. Uh, uh, it isn't as if we have had terrible constitutional crises before. Uh, uh, we're not there in any way, shape, or form. But the mere fact that, uh, relatively speaking, our constitutional regimes have lasted for 40 or 50 years and then were replaced. It doesn't follow that the next one will last for 40 or 50 years. Uh, if it generates, you know, it's, you know, it's up to we the people. But what, you see, I don't understand we the people to be a metaphor. I understand we the people to be a mobilized, sustained movement uh, that focuses on who should govern us. And, uh, uh, and if uh, given the evolution of uh, our system, 
the way the will of the American people is expressed is by elections to the president and the Congress, both. Uh, uh, so if in, 24, if in 24 and 28, in response to the, let's, let's as a concretize things, the repeal of Roe against Wade and the uh, 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 striking down of other fundamental elements of the New Deal con uh, civil rights constitution, uh, there is a mobilized majority before repudiating the repudiator. <laughs> um, well, we'll have a tough time, but we will struggle out, uh, I hope, uh, in, uh, by 28 or 32. Uh, in the meantime, of course, we will have lost a great deal of our moral authority uh, throughout the world. One of the things that is really uh, a striking fact, I mean, you know, look at Brexit right now. They're in a much more terrible condition than we are. Talk about Brexit. Your discussion of Brexit is so fascinating about how the British abandoned their constitution almost without knowing it. That's, well, what they, uh, the, uh, it is, uh, the, the fact is, you see, their constitution is not, um, one based on the sovereignty of the people. Uh, the, uh, this book, uh, this new book is organized around three paths to constitutionalism. One, the path taken by the United States, uh, India, uh, and the other countries that I've mentioned. Uh, another one, elite constructions. For example, in Spain, there was no mass mobilization after Franco. Uh, there was an elite bargain uh, which then got accepted by the population and was done in secret, uh, but without much at all of popular participation. Many countries successfully do this. Spain is a relative success story. Um, uh, but then we have the British example uh, of uh, establishmentarianism, you see. From 1832 to uh, the day before yesterday, there have been screamers and yellers every generation in Britain, just as in the United States. And what the Brits do is this. They co-opt the sensible ones and they send the others away. And the sensible ones come into the system and are socialized as, you know, Brits. And they're, you know, just as sensible as the rest of them. You know. Clement Attlee, socialist, really radical, just sensible, you know. What we did was just sensible. Have a nationalized health service with everybody, you know. Just sensible, it's also, you know, that's nothing, nothing to that. Now, <laughs> why is Patricia May uh, selected? Because of all the crazies after David Cameron's terribly stupid decision, well, we can't talk about that right now, uh, to have this referendum in the first place. But you do talk about it because it was a I misunderstanding do. of the British Constitution. Of well, it wasn't even. The, the original referendum said this is going to be advisory. It explicitly says it's going to be advisory. Then, to everyone's surprise, uh, the uh, people speak by a vote of 52 to 48. Uh, Cameron resigns from disgrace, and then Boris Johnson and other people say, the people have spoken, we have to get out immediately. Uh, and the, the conservatives look around, we have to have a sensible person. Patricia May is a sensible person. That's what her quality, this is absolutely British. 
absolutely British. You know, let's keep the crazies out, uh, have Patricia May, and she did the best she could, and, uh, uh, and, they, uh, and they don't have a majority in parliament for it. Um, so, but, but you insist throughout these studies that a single referendum cannot speak for the people. Well, but this is within the context of, uh, Amer of this revolutionary constitution. They don't, know, they don't know how to handle referenda. So, for example, the uh, referendum that David Cameron uh, um, uh, did uh, was one which said, okay, who can vote in the referendum? Generally speaking, if you live in uh, 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 the south of France, you know, and you're 75 years old, you've been out of the country for 15 years, you can vote for your member of parliament, the last place you live. The referendum says, no, you can't vote in the special referendum. They just lost 800,000 pro-European votes. Oh, but I, yes, of course. <laughs> no, I mean, it was just, they don't, they, I mean, really, they just didn't know how to handle it. I mean, you know, they, I mean, it was very rushy, you know, and, and uh, because uh, Cameron didn't want to have another general election because he was in trouble. So they just, there are a number of really, really odd things about this referendum. But the, the uh, but, but, uh, but is that point right? Because one of your solutions, and I'm yes, so reluctant please. that we have to begin to wrap up soon, is that uh, the American people should be presented with uh, a referendum at the t uh, time of a presidential election. They should get to vote. But then at the next election, they have to vote again yes. in order to make clear that the will of the people is deep and profound. Do you believe that in order to speak for we the people, there have to be at least two referenda? Absolutely. And this is very common. For example, Switzerland, which is... Uh, if you, it's a fundamental thing, two referenda. Uh, uh, there, there are many countries I don't have, to, we don't have time to, for me to take it. This is absolute, you see, the, one of the things, after all, about having a constitution written in uh, 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 1787 is it's the first dramatic you know, constitution uh, of a republic. Uh, they're just experimenting. Um, and we could learn from the experiences of other countries, and that's what I've been inviting you to do you know, uh, uh, today, uh, uh, in asking how could we get out of this uh, mess. So this is one of my proposals. But you see, there are, uh, my aim here in making these proposals is not to solve the problem, but to invite other scholars and people who really seriously think about it to make their own proposals. And citizens, and that's what- And that's citizens, what, of course. So you now can send this group of lifelong learners, of informed citizens, no, into mean, the Constitution. It is, of course, it's crucial. What charge do you want to tell them about what we can learn from the experience of other countries about how to avoid autocrats and demagogues who are trying to constitutionalize their charismatic authority and instead promote the rule of we, the people, and constitutionalism? Well, the mo the the what the basic weakness which is not shared in any other functional democracy uh, is the destruction of the Office of Legal Counsel and the creation of the White House Counsel uh, uh, as independent arbiters of statutory meaning in the executive branch, you see. Uh, in, um, uh, in there, I don't have to go, in different countries, there's always an institution in the executive which is the watchdog of legality. Um, 
That was true of the Office of Legal Counsel in the 1960s. At that time, it was an elite body of 30 lawyers, all of them being civil service, one political appointee at the top. Uh, through a complex process, uh, uh, the White House counsel did not exist until John Dean was uh, uh, selected. There was a fellow named White House counsel from Sa uh, Sam Rosen, um, I mean, on uh, in 1941, but the, uh, John Dean was the first uh, 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 counsel who had a staff of four. Uh, and, uh, and then he got involved in the Watergate, so that wasn't too good for the White House counsel's reputation. The, um, uh, but in any event, uh, uh, right now, every president fires everybody in the White House counsel's office and puts in his people, uh, many of them, graduates of the Yale Law School um, uh, who uh, uh, are uh, really smart, eager beavers, but believe in what the president's about and uh, will uh, write opinions trying to say what the president is about is legal. And the Office of Legal Counsel is a shadow of its former self, uh, once again, full of political appointments. Um, so we have no safeguard there, uh, uh, and uh, uh, because it isn't only uh, President Trump. Most presidents aren't constitutional scholars, really. Uh, Obama is the only one within, I don't memory. Bill Clinton. Of course, Bill Clinton. constitutional law. Yes, that's right. Interesting point. Uh, but you don't, I certainly don't believe that a president of the United States has to be a constitutional scholar. He, you know, that's one of the many things he could or could not be. Uh, 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 in any event, uh, Bill Clinton or Obama doesn't have time to think about that. <laughs> uh, 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 what he, what every other functioning democracy has is an institution within the executive that takes this job very seriously. And we did, and we've lost it. That would be even more important in my judgment than my proposal for uh, two referendum. Notice the only time you could have, I, I say in my uh, proposal, it's only if a president wins a second election, he can make a proposal for a constitutional amendment, it's called it. Um, so that means he's making it as his legacy, he's leaving. And it's only if it's approved by the a majority vote or a supermajority uh, of the people in the two, next two elections when, for all we know, his enemies are in charge but they still have to hold the election and maybe he had a good idea, uh, that it gets accepted. Uh, so I'm not uh, in favor of what they do in California, inundate you with 57 uh, um, uh, propositions for referenda and you can't even figure out what's going on. Uh, no, only one, a clear one, and if it isn't clear, well, then it's not going to be good, uh, et cetera, and so forth. That's my proposal on that front. Well, the only rule, as you know, of these uh, discussions is that they have to end on time, but I have to tell you, friends, that uh, when Bruce Ackerman grades papers, he has a very unique grading system. Um, usually you just get a check, but very occasionally, if you have an idea, you get an I. And what is so remarkable, what is such a privilege about being 
in Professor Ackerman's presence is that he is cascading with ideas. The man is so creative that he has given us so much to think about and the brilliance and creativity of his vision helps us see our constitutional history holistically and inspires all of us to learn more so that we can add our own voices to the ongoing story, which is the mobilization of we the people. Please join me in thanking Professor Bruce Ackerman. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. Last week's episode of We the People also featured Professor Ackerman discussing the constitutional stakes of the 2020 election in a civil debate with Georgetown Law Professor Randy Barnett. So please be sure to check out that episode too. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.